Well, if you'd like to open your Bibles to Acts 23. Father, from time to time we find reason to place confidence in the flesh. And I come praying that tonight, once again, we will be reminded, motivated, moved, and encouraged to place all of our confidence in the Spirit. Our trust in You, our security, our assurance. May it all be in Your Spirit, Lord who props us up, who strengthens us, who gives wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. May we, Father, by Your Spirit, come to have the same kind of commitment as we see in the Apostle Paul, who was a man just like us, but led by Your Spirit. May we also be so led, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to the church at Philippi, chapter 3, verse 4, Paul said, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So by all human wisdom and all human standards, Paul should have been appointed the Apostle to the Jews. We've talked about this last week, Sunday a little bit. Paul should have been the Apostle to the Jews. He thought so. I think so. When you look at his credentials, when you are handed his resume, you would say, of course, Paul should be the Apostle to the Jews. Of all the apostles, this guy had the the most street cred. He's the one. Every strategic 21st century missions and church planning organization knows you send indigenous personnel. You send Jews to Jews. Right? You send the people who know the people you want to reach to the people you want to reach. You use the insiders. You don't come in as an outsider. It's not effective. And so Paul would even argue the point with the Lord. Jesus had told Paul, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me, Acts 22.18. Then Paul gets into that little argument with Jesus. And he says again, Acts 22.21, and Jesus says, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Forget your credentials. Lay aside your training and all the preparation that you thought was for your life and go where I send you. Because when we go in our weakness, then the Lord is glorified. When we go in our frailty, the strength of the Lord becomes obvious. We have such a backwards view of that as humanity. We go in our strength. We go with our training. We go with all that we have to bear. And the Lord says, I think I'd like to send you somewhere else. Somewhere where your strength matters little. I think I've told you before, I went to college and then I went and got my master's degree in clinical psychology. Oh, 
And out of that got hired to my first youth ministry job thinking as a young man, I got a master's degree. They got to respect that. The Lord made sure I was hired by a church where their previous pastor, whom they had fired, had a master's degree in clinical psychology. There was no respect for that degree. It was worthless where I went. And since I found it's been pretty worthless anyway, but that's beside the point. You go where the Lord calls, even if that seems like the most unlikely of places Paul, the Jew among Jews, sent to the Gentiles. And what we see happen here, and I didn't realize this at first, but in Acts 22, 23, and 24, the Lord so graciously gives Paul an opportunity at the end of his ministry to learn for himself why God didn't send him to the Jewish people. To learn that yes, it was in fact better that he go to the Gentiles. Paul thinks, just give me an audience with Israel. Well, the Lord gives it to him and it does not go over well. And Paul learns very quickly that his ways are not my ways. And his ways are always better. Before sending him to Rome, God provides Paul with a mass audience of Jews there in Jerusalem. And then a personal audience following that on the next day. Last week we saw the mass audience. And we saw them in an uproar. And we saw Paul address them in the Hebrew Aramaic. And they listen for a time until he mentions the Gentiles. And then they go berserk. And the centurion and the Romans have to pull him out again just to save his life. We saw that. Well now God's going to give Paul a personal audience with the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. Picking up in verse 30 of chapter 22. On the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him, that is the the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, as we'll see. He released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. We left Paul last week in the custody of Rome for his own safety. And now he stands before the council of the Jews. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Can you say that? That's quite a statement. Quite an opener for his Jewish brethren. Paul was a man of absolutely rock-solid integrity. Not a perfect man by any means, but a man of integrity nonetheless. His actions always coincided with his thoughts, with his belief. That's why he was going to Damascus in the first place. He was sincere, sincerely wrong, but he was sincere in the connection of what he believed to be true, what he understood to be true, and how he acted upon it. That's integrity. Acts 24, verse 16, he would say, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. I act on what I know to be true. And the good thing about Paul is when he's shown what is not true, he turns and he accepts the truth. Paul also wrote this, however, after declaring that he is blameless in terms of his integrity, in terms of conscience, he wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, 
I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Perfectly good conscience? How can you say in one place you live your life with a perfectly good conscience and in another place call yourself a wretched man deserving of death? A man who is a prisoner of the law of sin. Take it a step further. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul said, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Some translations say chiefest. Chief sinner man is Paul's self-designation. So on the one hand, he lives with a perfectly good conscience, but on the other hand, he is a sinner. Hey, listen, conscience can, can be good in terms of giving you some sense of right and wrong and direction, but it's a lousy guide. Paul, by living by his conscience with integrity, was sinning big time against the Lord. Yes, he had a perfectly good conscience. He knew why he was doing what he was doing. He didn't intend to do what was wrong. He thought it was right. But that didn't make it right. He was still sinning. As he stood there watching the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death, he was sinful. He didn't know he was. Thought he was doing the right thing. James said, for him who knows what is right and does it not, it's a sin. Well, Paul didn't do that. He did what he thought was right, and yet he found himself to be a sinner just the same. See, that's how slippery sin really is. That's how, how much an undercurrent the sin nature in our lives is that we can be found to be sinful even when we're doing the absolute best we can possibly do. That's why we need grace. It's why the best of the best among us needs the grace of God. And why the worst of the worst among us needs the grace of God. Ain't nobody so bad that the Lord can't save them. Ain't nobody so good that they don't need God's grace. It works both ways. Paul is not disingenuous when he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. He's not pandering to try and make sinners feel like he understands them. Paul knows full well that even those who come off as perfect in integrity are sin-sick before a holy God. And that's the dichotomy in Paul's life. Having lived with a perfect conscience up till this day, and yet knowing how sinful and how desperately in need of grace he really was. By the way, for those who like to say, I live by my conscience, you may run into a few of them, family members this holiday season, I don't need church. I live by my conscience. My conscience is my judge. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. I may think that I am perfectly fine. My conscience may seem clear, and yet I am not the one who is capable of examining myself. Only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord is my judge. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from 
God. We all need Jesus. Paul needed Jesus. He's the judge. And no other praise and truly no other condemnation matters. Only that which comes by Jesus Christ. Note when Paul opens up his testimony here before the council. He refers to the brethren. King James translation even states, he says, men and brothers. Now what's interesting about this is that in referring to them as Adelphos, Adelphos in the Greek is brothers, that's what he says, Adelphos. Some believe he's calling them brothers rather than fathers because Paul once was one of them. You see, for a Jew to stand before the Sanhedrin and refer to them as anything other than fathers was disrespectful. But Paul refers to them as brothers and it may well be that he himself was on the Sanhedrin. We'll see later in Acts that he says he cast his vote with them. And so perhaps he was. But continuing on, verse 2, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? You see, Paul knew that the law said you were not to strike someone unless they were proven guilty of something. You were not allowed to strike them at all until there was proof, until evidence had been brought. And before anything had happened before the council, this guy, the high priest, has him slapped in the face. Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. I love it. But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. See the integrity of Paul? He reacts. He's struck in the mouth. I mean, what would you do? Stand there and go, Thanks for that. He reacted immediately. How dare you! Strike me in the mouth. You violated the law. Until he discovers who the high priest is, and then immediately he shows respect. That's integrity. It wasn't right in reacting the way he did, but he showed integrity by turning on a dime and accepting the downside and saying, I, I apologize in essence. I didn't know who I was talking to. See, Paul's capable of wrong words. He's capable of reaction. He's, he's capable of knee-jerking. But he knew the law. Exodus 22, verse 28, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. I'm going to have that verse etched in wood and put up above my office door. That would be a good thing. But how could Paul not be aware that this was the high priest to whom he spoke? Everybody knew who the high priest was. How could Paul not know? That's a topic that we're going to save for Sunday morning. This is a great little story. We'll come back and chew on a bit. Verse 6, But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great dissension, or as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And that's it with the council. Paul... His, his simple statement of faith in the hope of the resurrection immediately splits the council. Now, was that Paul's intention? You bet it was. This guy, I said last week, he's brilliant. Sharp as attack and perceiving that he had a, a split council already of, of Sadducees and Pharisees, <laughs> he throws out the hope of the resurrection. And they freak out. But it was, I believe, more than just a strategy. I don't think Paul was playing a game of division. Personally, I believe by the Spirit, he was drawing out the truth. And sometimes drawing out the truth is upsetting. On the other hand, if you don't draw out the heresies among us, they function like poison and they start to kill. There was a heretical view there in the ruling council among the Sadducees that there was no resurrection. No such thing as angels. No spirit realm. And gang, it was heresy. Complete heresy. What is heresy, Rick, anyway? Unbiblical. Anything that counters Scripture that is not of the Word and the will of God. Anything that would oppose that. And so the Sadducees in their faith, in their belief, were heretical. Paul draws this out. And that's important to draw out heresy because if it's not drawn out, it's going to kill. If it's not addressed, then it just sits among people, sometimes in churches. It's absorbed. It's remarkable to me over the years of what I've recognized has been absorbed in the larger church by tradition, by denominational background, absorbed as truth that is unbiblical. And if I say things that are opposed to certain doctrines or thoughts or dogmas of of other denominations or traditions, understand the issue is that we've got to draw out what is heresy from what is truth. That we might stand on the truth and be free of the things that we thought were true but really weren't. Paul thought he was serving God. He really wasn't. You may have complete integrity with a certain uh, construct of faith, a certain belief. But if it's wrong, if it's heresy, we need to draw it out. Otherwise, it will kill. And and that's what Paul's doing here. I mean, denying resurrection in and of itself is heretical because it denies or it rejects the hope of eternal life. And Paul, you'll, you'll see him do this several times here in his testimonies that he gives throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He ties hope and resurrection together. He many times speaks of the hope of the resurrection. In fact, here in verse 6 we see him do it. In Acts 26, 
to King Agrippa there in the amphitheater at Caesarea among, amongst all kinds of pomp and circumstance. Paul stands before them in chains and he says, Now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? See, that's my hope. Paul says, that's what I live for, that's what I live on, that's what I trust in. And by the way, that's why I'm in these chains. Because I have hope in the resurrection from the dead. Later, Acts chapter 28, to the Jews there in Rome, he will gain an audience. And Acts 28 verse 20 says, For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel was resurrection. Going all the way back to the fathers, all the way up to the present day, I've told you before, the national anthem of Israel today is the Hatikvah. Hatikvah, which means the hope. The hope. What, if anything, is the hope of Israel? It is resurrection. It's that Messiah would come bringing with Him resurrection. Abraham believed that. That's why he bought the cave in in the field of Machpelah. He bought that cave so that when he and his wife resurrected, they could walk out of the cave and ride out in their resurrected state onto the field that he owned. It was the only thing he ever bought. Moses believed in the resurrection, had hope in the resurrection. David, David hoped in the resurrection constantly. He he said, Psalm 16 verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Please listen to this. If you would like a glad heart, and if you would like to rejoice on a daily basis, and you want your flesh to dwell securely, even in this insecure world, listen to what David said. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Translation, Lord, you're not going to leave me dead. Well, how's he going to accomplish that? David goes on. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. See, Messiah is not going to stay dead. And because Messiah doesn't stay dead, because he resurrects, guess what? I will too. He'll bust open the doors. I get to just walk right through. And David says in Psalm 1611, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever life without the hope of the resurrection is hopeless there's no sense to it whatsoever why didn't the Sadducees accept the resurrection what was their problem man why were they so sad you see they were the liberal left wing of the party Liberal left-wing theologians, they viewed much of Scripture as allegorical, as just stories to kind of guide, you know, their morality. But they rejected the spirit realm. And again, angels, resurrection, they rejected it all. The Pharisees were the conservative right-wing scholars. They were the far right, taking the Scriptures literally... I credit them with that. They may be known for legalism, 
and for twisting the scriptures to work for them. But you got to at least give them credit. They saw the vital connection between angels and resurrection. What do you mean? The connection between angels and resurrection is very simply the acceptance of life beyond this realm. That there is more. That this is just a way station on the way into eternity. Well, Sadducees, Pharisees, they're all messed up. But here's the thing. The Pharisees simply accepted what we know in our heart of hearts to be true. Christians, Jews, religions of all persuasion, atheists, agnostics, scientists, every human being that's ever walked the face of the earth knows there's an eternity. We know it. Oh, people will try to deny it. People will try and come up with all kinds of reasons why there can't possibly be an eternity, that this life is all there is, and they will sink into that deception. But it's self-deception, for the truth is, they at one time knew somehow there was eternity. As kids we knew. Freaked us out, but we knew, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us why God has set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So, so the verse indicates we all know there's an eternal reality. We just don't get it. We have trouble figuring it out, trying to think it through. That's where faith comes in. God gave us the sense of eternity, but not the full picture, so that we would have to come to Him. So that we would have to trust in Him to start to understand what this eternal reality is really all about. And yet, when we, like the Sadducees, when we begin to dismiss things like the spirit realm, angels, spiritual gifts, resurrection, the virgin birth, the rapture of the church. When we start to dismiss these things as fantastic or fanciful, our entire reliance on God's Word begins to crumble. What are you going to believe? What are you not going to believe? And who's to say if this verse is right, but that one is not? Are you that wise? You may have eternity in your heart, but not so that you can figure it all out. I've yet to meet anyone who is wise enough. Well, I've met some people who thought they were wise in their own estimation. I used to be one of them. I've yet to meet anyone who can tear up the Scriptures and make it work. You know, Thomas Jefferson tried. He tried to pull the supernatural out of the Bible. He has his own Thomas Jefferson New Testament. And it ends, the Gospel ends, and they laid him there in the sepulcher and departed. What a lousy ending for a story. If you try and tear it out, your faith itself will crumble. We either accept all of God's Word or reject it. Don't play the game in the middle. You're lying to yourself. And I'm not just saying this to you. I'm saying anyone who hears this teaching, anyone who might hear or understand this, you are lying to yourself if you think that you can accept some of God's Word and not all of God's Word. It's all His Word. 
I'm going to be hammering on this point for a while, gang, because we are about to get into some of the most critical and vital doctrine, teaching of Christianity as we get into the letters of Paul. And as I said last week, many people who dispute aspects of the letters of Paul, well, that's just Paul. Paul, by the will of God. Don't miss that. It's either all his word or none of it is. And we're not going to play the middle. Verse 10. So this great dissension was developing. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night following, that is that night, it's a little wonky the way it's phrased there, but that night basically, the Lord stood at his side, at Paul's side, and said, Take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And why would Jesus show up and say, take courage, except that Paul was discouraged? He's back in the barracks. He got one sentence out before the Sanhedrin went ballistic. Two sentences, okay, we'll give him that. He he, he didn't get to reach his own people. What a tragedy for Paul. Finally having opportunity to talk to the Jewish people, the people of Israel, his own kind. And he didn't get to have much of an audience with any of them. And he's sitting back there in the barracks, not in chains, because remember he's a Roman citizen, so they wouldn't do their, dare do that again. And he's sitting there bummed, thinking through all this, processing, wondering what's going to happen next. I just love that Jesus shows up again. First time He appeared to him, He appeared on the Damascus Road to turn him around in his integrity. The second time, He promised Paul through Ananias that He would see the righteous one, that He would know God's will, that He would hear the sound of His voice. And Paul does, doesn't he? He sees the righteous one more than once, multiple times. He hears the sound of his voice. Listen, when you get discouraged, when you feel shut down, if you ever get in that place where you wonder if you're doing anyone any good whatsoever, there is no greater, more encouraging voice than the voice of Jesus. Just to hear him say those two words, take courage. Tharseo. It's just one word in the Greek. Tharseo. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Tharseo. It is so Jesus. Tharseo. Of the seven times this word appears in the New Testament, six times are spoken by Jesus, and the seventh is related to Jesus. Tharseo. Take courage. Because in Jesus is courage. In Jesus is good cheer. Matthew chapter 9 verse 2. He said to the paralytic, Tharseo, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9.22, to the woman who touched the hem of his robe, he said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. In Matthew 14.27, and repeat it again in Mark 6 verse 50. To the twelve, as he walked out to them on the Sea of Galilee, and verily, verily, they were freaking out, he said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Mark chapter 10, verse 49. He's in Jericho. This is the one time that Jesus isn't the one who says, take courage, but it's about Jesus. See this little blind guy on the side of the road, blind Bartimaeus, blind Barty, calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. And so they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. I love the phrase. And then of course, John 16.33, on the very night of his own betrayal, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Truly, all I need when I'm feeling down is to hear Jesus say, Be of good cheer. Chin up, Rick. Take courage. I've overcome the world. And finally, in Acts 23.11, to Paul here in the barracks, Take courage. No voice cheers the heart like his. It will take two full years for Paul ultimately to arrive in Rome. But gang, Paul is going to Italy. On that all expenses paid trip, thanks to Rome, he's going to Italy. His ministry was not finished. He would testify in Rome. Be of good cheer, Paul. Verse 12, when it was day. Oh, this is interesting. The plot thickens. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Do you know 40 people who are ready to take an oath of starvation until they kill you? Paul knew how to stir it up. Forty people who hate you enough to take a vow of starvation until you are dead. Now, you already know the rest of the story. They're not going to succeed. I wonder how long the vow lasted. I'm thinking maybe until Hanukkah. And then one of their wives made those little potato pancakes with the applesauce. It's so good. Well, I better let go of that vow. You know, what's funny is the Mishnah actually made provision for quitting a vow, quote, by reason of constraint. Exter- you know, external circumstances. What is it? What's the phrase, guys? Something circumstances? You know the one I'm looking for? Extenuating circumstances. Thank you ever so much. Was that Ben who said that? Gold star. If there are extenuating circumstances, then of course you may break a vow. Well, that's not what Jesus said. I like his provision a whole lot better. Let me just read this to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said again, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now your children can. (laughs) But Jesus says, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, Anything beyond these is of evil. Why? Because it's prideful. Taking a vow, be careful. Even if it's a a vow of, of humility, vows tend to be prideful. I fasted this week, Lord, for an entire two hours between lunch and dinner. Be careful. It may be the stuff of pride. Jesus said, just just don't make vows. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just don't make any vows, Jesus says. It's a lot easier that way. Well, while the brute squad is out making their plans to see to Paul's demise, someone else was intercepting them. Verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush And he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. We don't know anything else about this kid. We get this verse, this this little story. He overheard them making this vow, telling the, the Sanhedrin what they were willing to do, these 40 guys. He overheard and he races and makes his way into the barracks, somehow has access into there, comes to Paul and tells him what's going on. Obviously, this kid was able to move freely about Jerusalem. Even to get into the barracks. Now, I say kid, I'm making an assumption. Could have been an adult. Could have been a young man. Maybe he was a young yeshiva student who was there in Jerusalem like Paul was. We don't even know if Paul's sister, did she live in Jerusalem or was she perhaps living back in in Tarsus but sent her son as Paul was sent to grow up and be trained up and raised up in Jerusalem? Perhaps. But it's all guesswork. We just know Paul had a nephew who overheard, in verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions to him, which, by the way, was his Roman right as a citizen of Rome. And he said, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you. Another reason why I think maybe he was a kid, young man. Since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? Verse 20. And he said the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him and now they are already waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Paul didn't know, wouldn't have known. There was a contract out on his life, if not for this nephew. Now, by contrast, Jesus always knew. Jesus just called it as he saw it. He knew early on. John chapter 2 says that he was not willing to entrust himself to them for he knew what was in man. 
and throughout His ministry. John 7, verse 19. Jesus said to the crowds, to the Jews in Jerusalem, He said, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. What part of the law? Thou shalt not kill. Because then Jesus says, Why do you seek to kill me? (laughs) Now, the whole crowd wasn't seeking to kill Him. But someone there was... Someone standing there with that crowd before Jesus wanted him dead. And when Jesus said, why do you seek to kill me? They were like, how does he know? How does he know? Can you imagine the people who are just freaked out by Jesus all the time? Calling out their thoughts, their motives, their intentions. Well, God in the flesh can do that. John chapter 8, verse 37. He, he's in an argument with the Pharisees. And he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. John eight forty. As it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. That is, Abraham did not seek to kill the word of God. But you are. Jesus had... An absolutely remarkable sense of divine perception. He just knew what was up. John 13 tells us he knew his time had come. He knew the one who was going to betray him. He knew that night was the night of betrayal. He knew. The point I'm making is this. Paul did not. Oh, Paul knew the heart of man was dark. Paul knew that Jews were angry with him, but but note this, Paul would have stayed on the stairs, Paul would have gone back out to the people if he had been allowed to, and would have been torn up. Paul still held held out hope for his brothers, that, that they would hear the message, and if not for the Romans protecting him from himself, he probably would have been killed by them. He knew the heart of man was dark, but he didn't know the plots and schemes like Jesus did, not specifically. And as the plot thickens in the story, we see, we meet three surprising agents of God. Secret agent 001, we'll call him. And that is this eavesdropping nephew. If not for this nephew, no one would have known they would have brought Paul down. Forty people, forty men were committed to his death. He would have been killed. And so, the nephew shows up. Why didn't Jesus just tell Paul? Wasn't it just that night, the night before, Jesus shows up and says, take courage. As you solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you must be my witness at Rome also. Oh, and by the way, 40 guys are trying to kill you, so you may want to let the commander know so he can get you out of here. Would have been that simple. Jesus, (laughs) why didn't you just tell Paul yourself? Logically, perhaps because it would have been more difficult to get the commander to believe it, you know, at least this way, you've got a witness who, who overheard this and could go to the commander, so it, it verifies what's really going on. So there's, there's wisdom there. But why then didn't Paul, and I'm speaking foolishly here, why didn't Paul have enough faith to tell his nephew, don't worry about it, the Lord will save me? Jesus told him the night before, you're going to go to Rome. Why didn't Paul tell his nephew, no big, I'm good, covered. God's already told me I'm going to Rome. I don't need 
your natural help. Instead, he employs his citizen right. He calls in the centurion. You know, sometimes God uses human agents. Sometimes God uses human agency to perform His will, even to save His people. This is a very natural way God goes about the rescue of Paul from this contract on his life. And we can miss sometimes the supernatural work of God because it looks so natural. Sometimes, none of you, but sometimes believers reject the work of God because it's too natural. I'm waiting for answered prayer. You know, it's that old silly story. You've heard it, I'm sure, before spoken in pulpits of the guy on his roof in the middle of a flood and a helicopter comes and he says, no, that's okay, God's going to save me. And then a rowboat comes, God's going to save me. And a little motorboat comes and finally he drowns and goes before the Lord. He says, Lord, why didn't you save me? Well, I sent you a helicopter and a motorboat and a rowboat, you know. Sometimes God uses human agency and we can miss it. If we're always looking for something Fantastic, something supernatural. It could be as, as natural a thing as, as mechanics. I am not a mechanical guy. And yet, every single time our dryer goes out, I call Joe Phillips. He's a master. He's brilliant. He gets in there and he starts tweaking and working and the next thing I know, Cheryl's drying clothes. And it's, to me, supernatural. (laughs) I can't do that. How many dryers would I have gone through? It could be as natural as... Now I'm going to step on some toes, I'm sure of it. Medicine. Or the advice of a physician. I'm not going to go to a doctor, I'm waiting for God to heal me. Gang, Mark Harris, one of our shepherds, is a phenomenal physician... And has testified to me how many times in working in the emergency room, he did things, he said, where he washed his own hands performing skills he did not have. Where ideas came into his mind about treatment that he had not studied. God using human agency, something as simple and natural or so it seems as as medicine, and yet sometimes Christians say, well, I'm just not going to go that route. Okay. Now... Hear me very carefully on this. If God has told you He's going to heal you a different way, you have faith for that and you are certain of it, I'm not going to have an argument with you. But to reject sometimes the natural things that God brings to us simply because they're natural is is kind of foolish. Now it could be something as supernatural as a miracle. Divine healings. Miraculous rescues. In this case, it's a nephew who's the agent. In previous situations, both Paul and Peter were supernaturally released from prison. Obviously, it was a work of God for the angel to show up in Acts chapter 12 and and lead Peter out. Or for Paul and Silas in Acts 16 to be sitting there singing in the prison in Philippi and that massive earthquake and all the bars come open and they just could walk right out. So supernatural rescue, but here it's a very natural rescue. Send the, send the little guy. Have him go. Paul experienced both natural and supernatural works of God, but either way, it's still a work of God. It's still how the Lord functions. And I remind you 
that Jesus in His first coming is the ultimate meeting of the natural and the supernatural. He came as both. Isaiah 7.14 Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Supernatural has the most natural entrance into the world. Surprisingly. Well, how do I know when to look for the natural versus the supernatural? You don't. So just trust the Lord to do it. Trust that He really does have your best interest in mind. And so you pray. If you're sick, you pray. Say, Lord, I am seeking Your healing. I'm going to the doctor. I just had an MRI today on my wrist. I can wait, I can pray, I can seek supernatural healing. And I have been, and I continue to. And I got an MRI. I'm praying for the supernatural work of God. I'm accepting that He has given natural ability to man that may also work as a healing process. Either way, I'm confident that the Lord is going to do what He wants to do with my life, with my body, with my wrist. It's up to Him. The greater issue, greater than whether it's miraculous or plain as day, the greater issue is faith. It's that we trust the Lord to do what's best for us and we entrust ourselves to Him. We pray, we wait on the Lord, we go forward and we see what He does. And if He heals this wrist before the doctor can do anything, if it just all of a sudden feels great, I'm not going to have anything else done. Am I stupid? But if not, we'll continue forward. Psalm 27, verse 13, David wrote, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Faith doesn't always mean fantastic. Sometimes it's as natural as a nephew with big ears. So he was the first secret agent.